All right. Well, thanks for listening to that for uh, just a moment. Um, we are continuing our series called Restore My Soul. Uh, that line is taken out of Psalm chapter uh, 23. All right. And in Psalm 23, uh, there's this line and there's this imagery of God is our shepherd, all right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he makes me, you know, uh, he leads me beside his quiet waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures, like this beautiful picture of care and provision. And the psalmist declares, it is the Lord who restores my soul. And so we wanna spend time this fall just exploring that idea and making that really our prayer, all right? There's both a promise in it. The Lord is the one who does this, who has done that. He's actively doing it. But also it's a posture of prayer. Lord, would you restore my soul? Because I'm feeling a little beat down, a little discouraged, right? Like we all feel those things and even in a heightened way over the last couple of years. And so what would it look like for the Lord to do that work of restoration and of renewal, rejuvenation? And so with that, we believe that there are certain truths that we need to rest in and certain lies that need to be combated. And so each week we are looking at a particular Truth, And so that's what we're going to do again this morning, and we will see what is also a very prevalent lie, a lie that would speak to us in such a way that it would discourage us, it would leave us feeling dejected, it would leave us feeling isolated, it would not cause the soul to flourish. But my friends, if we rest in what we're gonna get into this morning, I think it will bring joy to your heart. That's what I've been praying for this week, that it will bring this restoration. And so to get into that this morning, one of the things that, if you know me, um, you know uh, there's a, a few things that, that I uh, like. I make Lord of the Rings references. Uh, I did that last week, all right? There's not one this week. Uh, but, um, but I also, I am a sucker for an emotionally moving, gripping sports story, all right? I just love it, all right? And so to watch particular sporting you know, events, to hear backstory, it's what I think I love about the Olympics, and they're doing these little montages, like, oh, this is amazing, right? And just crying, right? So we have those sort of moments. And then I love, all right, God's common grace to us all. ESPN presents 30 for 30, right? I mean, I love those things, all right? Any 30 for 30 people? Yeah, okay, all right. There, amen, you're my people, all right? And so I love these documentaries. And there was something that came to mind this week as I was preparing for this. It was, about, it was one of my favorite ones. And it's a story that talks about, all right, the amazing run that in the early 90s, the Buffalo Bills, the NFL football team, had in making it to four consecutive Super Bowls. That is incredibly impressive. And some of you are like, yeah, but they lost all four. Listen, man, I'm a Lions fan that anybody would even make it to the playoffs, let alone the Super Bowl, not once, but twice, three times, four times, is an amazing feat of which I don't think I'll ever have that experience for my team. But if you know the story, you know that for four consecutive years, they made it to the big game. And their first time there in the early 90s, it was January 27th, 1991, in Tampa Bay, Florida, the Buffalo Bills were playing the New York Giants. And the Buffalo Bills found themselves down 19 to 20 late in the fourth quarter. And Jim Kelly led them on this drive. They had burned up all their timeouts. And with eight seconds remaining, he spikes the ball because they have just barely gotten into field goal range for their kicker, a gentleman by the name of Scott Norwood. Scott Norwood had kicked a 48-yarder earlier in the season, but this field goal was gonna be 47 yards, all right? It was pushing the, the kind of the reaches of like how far he would be able to kick a field goal. 
And so with eight seconds to go, and literally every eye in the stadium on him, every Buffalo Bills fan, all right, just caught up in this moment, millions of people around the world watching on their television, Scott Norwood came out there with eight seconds to go, hoping to hit this particular field goal so that the Buffalo Bills would win 22 to 20. And if you or happen to be old enough to have watched that or have watched this documentary or even have a sense of probably where this story's going because I told you they lost four in a row, right? With eight seconds to go, he lines up, he goes through his routine and he kicks this field goal. And as the ball is sailing through the air, it becomes very clear very early on, it has enough distance. The length of the kick was not going to be the issue, but as the announcer pronounced, as it got closer to the goalpost, right, he uses these words, it's wide right. And with this absolute look of just disappointment and dejection, Scott Norwood, his shoulders slump and his head goes down and all of his teammates on the sidelines are just left with this like, oh, and the New York Giants get the ball and they take a knee and the clock runs out and they celebrate while the Bills and their fans and everybody is just in this state of shock and of mourning and just this grief. And the next day, the team traveled from Tampa, uh, Florida, back up to uh, middle of January, heading back up to Buffalo. Um, and as they got there, all right, there was a large gathering. And this documentary tells this story. There's this large gathering for the team. Over 30,000 fans, apparently, gathered on that particular day to just welcome their team back. Not to yell at them, not to say, you're a terrible disappointment, right? But to hear from the team and to celebrate the year that they'd had, to hear promises of, we'll be back next year. And they were, right? I mean, like all of these things. And so the coaches spoke at this kind of rally that happened and the quarterback spoke. And all the while, Scott Norwood, and here is a, a picture of him. You can see, I mean, this is the, the field goal that goes slightly right. And you can see his body language there on the bottom. That is not the look of somebody who's rejoicing. And that same posture carried all the way till he made his way back to the city of Buffalo. And during this welcome back sort of rally, he tells in the documentary that he purposefully stood behind his teammates who were larger than him. He just didn't want to be seen, all right? He didn't want any attention. He was just hoping he could sort of fade into the background. And as various people shared and the crowd thanked them for the year, a chant which started as sort of a murmur, began to break out and it became this swelling sort of chorus there amongst these 30,000 plus fans. And what Scott Norwood began to hear as he's standing behind probably big linemen and such were these words, we want Scott. We want Scott. We want Scott. There was this overwhelming just this noise, this chorus of Buffalo Bill fans chanting that they want to hear from their kicker. Not to shame him, but to appreciate him, to thank him. He says in the documentary, he said to the crowd, in this moment, I have never felt so loved in my life. They did not focus on the missed kick, but rather it was just this thankfulness for all that had occurred. And in that moment, friends, his posture, he did not leave that rally that day with his head down, his shoulders slumped, right? He had still very real disappointment. Sure, he would have loved to have won the Super Bowl. He would have loved to have been the hero. 
But he left that day feeling, oh, this city, they love me. The community of fans. He felt this overwhelming sense of I am desired. I am not rejected and discarded, but I am welcomed. I have a home here. Now, as profound as that is, friends, here's what I wanna look at this morning. As we battle the lies that we encounter, this book, this Bible, this Holy Scriptures, it is telling a story that there is a God who desires you so much that he would send his son to get you back. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that for those of us that are in Christ, the book of Zephaniah would speak of this, that more than a crowd of 30,000 people chanting for Scott Norwood the God of the universe that says, chants your name. Like you fill in the blank, I want. That's the story this is telling. I want, I put my name in there. I want Jamie. I desire relationship with him. I desire a relationship so much, God would say, that I will send my one and only son. And if you thought 30,000 fans screaming for you, telling you that you're loved and desired and welcomed and you have a place is impressive, how much more so that the God of the universe, it tells us, is rejoicing over you if you're in Christ, singing over you, declaring to anyone who will listen, that is my son or daughter. Now, I don't know about you, but I need that reminder every moment of every day. And we get to look at a text this morning that has always been a favorite of mine. It's this obscure text, seemingly obscure text in the book of 2 Samuel that we'll look at. But here's what it's gonna help us see. Here's the truth we need to rest in, that you are desired. You are desired by the God of the universe. We want to see this movement from this place of being dejected to understanding that you are desired by God. And so I want to invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. This chapter is 13 verses. So if you brought a Bible, please turn there. If you're like, hey, where's 2 Samuel? It's right after 1 Samuel. Sorry, okay, very helpful, I know. Um, no, table of contents is your friend, or go to cp.church on your phone, click the next steps icon, and you'll see the thing there that says sermon notes. Everything that uh, is up on the screens this morning will be there, including the text, all right? And so I wanna read this sort of section by section as we get this unfolding story, just this beautiful story in 2 Samuel chapter nine. What we're gonna see First is a commitment that King David has made. How he's gonna honor his promise. And then we're gonna see the condition of a man that we're introduced to that he is gonna show compassion to. So we'll look at the commitment. We'll look at the conditions that this man is that is gonna receive a kindness from the king. And then we'll talk about what does that compassion cost? What does it cost for you and I to receive this word that we're desired? And then how in turn can we be encouraged to go and to love others as we have been, been loved? So 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, here's how the story begins. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now for a bit of context, Israel, for most of its life, for all its history as a people up until this point, um, they had not had a king. The Lord was their king. But they want to be like the other nations. They say, we want a king. We want somebody like in flesh and blood that we can see. So the Lord appoints to them through his servant Samuel, King Saul. And so King Saul, who's very impressive, he stands head and shoulders above everybody else. Like he's just a very like, 
physically impressive, impose, you know, like just this physically impressive man, this imposing figure, he becomes king. But if you know the story, you know that he does not ultimately honor the Lord. He does not follow the Lord's ways. He makes things about him, takes matters into his own hands. And eventually is told that the kingdom, the rights to rule are going to pass not to his son as the next heir, though that's typically how a, you know, a, a monarchy would work, but rather it was going to go to an entirely different family line, to an entirely different tribe of people, all right, that it's going to go to David. And so if you can imagine Saul and David, there'd be a little bit of tension there to know, oh, this guy is going to take my spot. And then the craziest thing of all is that Saul's son is Jonathan, and Jonathan and David become best of friends. I mean, think about that for a moment. Imagine growing up, you think about like your, your best friend, right? Um, and every time you go to that best friend's house, uh, your best friend's dad wants to kill you, right? Some of you are like, oh, yeah, actually how it was, but I don't know. Anyway, like, right? That would be crazy. What intensity to live under. And yet Jonathan and David, their souls are literally knit together. They are the best of friends. And Jonathan knows that he has to honor his father and he's gonna, he's gonna be with his father. He'll ultimately probably give his life like with his father, that that's gonna happen. And so he makes this, has this conversation with his best friend, David. And he's like, listen, regardless of what happens, will you commit, will you covenant with me to see that my family line is taken care of? And so we read of that in 1 Samuel chapter 20. This is some of the context for what we have here in verse one of chapter nine. He says, if I'm still alive, show me, and we'll come back to this word, the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Like Jonathan sees, oh, David is the anointed one. David is the one who's going to be king. He's looking ahead to a day. He's asking for there to be this promise. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. There's further details that are given throughout the book of 1 Samuel. But the idea is this, David had made a promise. And at this point in the story, not only has Saul died, Jonathan has died. In fact, they died on the same hill together. And David now, though there'd been some skirmishes and some other members of Saul's family wondering, like, who, who's, is somebody going to be able to take the throne? David eventually achieves peace. He's set up as the ruler of all of Israel. And that's where we find the story. And so David looks out and he says, listen, is there anyone left in Saul's family? Is there anybody left in Jonathan's family line that I can show? And that the word here, this, he, so, he says, can I show kindness? Hesed, this idea here, this beautiful word that gets translated a lot of different ways. It can speak of love or kindness or faithfulness. Maybe a way to think about it is this, when he says that I may show him this hesed, the loving kindness, the sacrificial love in action. I mean, isn't that what love is? Isn't that what true kindness is? Like there has to be an action-oriented aspect to it. To just say to somebody, I love you, I care for you, I will never sacrifice for you, I'll never be inconvenienced for you, is not love or kindness. And so David says, is there anyone that I can show the loving kindness? Can I show Hesed too? And so let's look how this story continues then. Verses two to five, then speak of the condition of the one that he's going to show this kindness toward. It says this, now... There was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. 
And they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness that has said of God to him? And Ziba said to him, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, well, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Now we look at these details. We read through this and maybe there's nothing that jumps out to you, but I'm guessing there's at least some details that you're like, oh, this person, one of the distinguishing marks is he is lame, he's crippled in his feet. He says, there is still a son of Jonathan and he's crippled in his feet. So apparently there is one who remains. Not all of Saul and Jonathan's line has been killed off. There is this one who is crippled in his feet. Well, what's that man's story, right? Like we wonder, was he born that way? Was he, has he been un, unable to walk his entire life? If you were to go back and read just a few chapters earlier, and I'll put it up on the screen here in a moment, we learn of who this man is, his identity, and we learn what happened to him. That this man's name is Mephibosheth, all right? Easy to say, all right? Mephibosheth, all right? Gotten a, maybe you're expecting a kid on the way, looking for a name, Mephibosheth, right? It's a great name, all right? So Mephibosheth is part of the family line of Saul. He is a son of Jonathan. He's got royalty running through his veins. And when he's five years old, word comes to his nurse that Saul has died, that his father Jonathan has died. And so the nurse, in a moment of kindness and of grace and mercy, says, we gotta get out of here. Because if there's a regime change that's taking place, the strategy would be round up anyone who could claim to be a rightful heir and make sure they are put to death. And so she looks at this young boy named Mephibosheth, this young active boy who prior to this moment has been running around and he's active and he's doing what little boys do, full of life and energy and zeal. And here's what we read in 2 Samuel chapter four. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. He was not born with crippled feet. He was not born lame. And a kind nurse who's taking even her own, like she's, she's willing to risk her own life, says, we've got to get out of here. And so she scoops him up. And in this great tragedy, this great like, moment of this tragic event, somehow she stumbles, she loses the child from her arms, and something happens to his feet. And in a day and age where they couldn't bring him to a doctor and you know, have the bones reset and put some casts on and give enough time for him to, to heal, he spends the rest of his days now here as we meet him as a grown man. As we'll learn later, he has his own son living his life, fleeing, living in a place far away from where he grew up, would have known nothing. I don't know how much he remembered as a five-year-old, right? But if he did remember it, he would have thought, man, I got everything. I'm a son of the king. I've got everything. He literally, he didn't desire or want for anything, now he can't walk, he has to be cared for, he can't produce, there's all of these things. And then it tells us he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. 
If you look up that word, one of the ways that that gets translated and understood, because probably most of us are reading that, like, oh, low day bar, yeah, been there. No, like, what does it actually mean? It literally means it can be translated as the place of no pasture. It means that there's no growth. So the man who is crippled in both of his feet, who is lame, is now away from his home. He is in this place of desolation where nothing will grow. Just think about his life. He went from this royal place, everything going the way that he would have desired. It would have been amazing. And now he's crippled. He can't walk. He can't care for himself. He can't go out and work. All right. And he's in this place of desolation. He's isolated. He's dejected, all of that. And then one day there's a knock on the door and it says this, then King David sent and brought him. Now, we're reading this story, and we know a bit of maybe how it plays out, and we know, oh, King David, he's a great king. He's kind and compassionate. He's looking to show loving kindness, has said to anyone a part of Jonathan's family. But think about this for a moment. This is the day that Mephibosheth dreaded. He had prayed that this day would never come. Why? Because he had fled with his nurse in haste. Why? because he is part of the other royal line. He is part of Saul's family, which means he literally is an enemy of the state. And what do good kings do strategically? They get rid of their enemies. They don't allow them to continue living in low day bar. He sends word and says, bring Mephibosheth. And so in this moment, there's no part of Mephibosheth that is like, oh, cool, I'm getting to go back to the palace. He is dreading this moment. He is an enemy. So you just think about this for a moment. Imagine, again, the life that he had, the trajectory of his life, and seemingly everything has gone wrong. He is lame. He's far away. He's not living in any place great. Nobody wants to be from Lodebar. And now the king has called him in. And so friends, let's look at how this story then plays out as we see this costly compassion that is directed toward Mephibosheth. So we pick it up. I'll read verses six to 13 and we'll make our way back through the text. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, says, and he fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you, get this, all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant? This is Mephibosheth's response to David, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Verse nine, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always, not just once, not every now and again, not for special occasions or holidays, shall always eat, it says, at the king's table, right? Like one of the king's sons. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's look at this compassion for a moment. 
and see some of the details in this text. Not just so that we would understand a story from thousands of years ago, but so that you and I might hear what God is trying to communicate about you. That as amazing as it was for Buffalo Bill fans to chant, we want Scott, there is a God who calls out and tells you and me that you are desired, that I am desired, that he desires relationship with us. And then as amazing as what is happening from Mephibosheth, as amazing as it is, we'll look at some of that in more detail. There is something even greater for us, something we can know more truly and fully. And so it says, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, he came. Remember, I mean, he's trembling. He's an enemy. He thinks this is the end. This is the day that he's dreaded. And it said, and David said, Mephibosheth. And I hadn't seen this at first, but in my study, in one of the commentaries said, up to this point, every time David is mentioned, really, you also have this, also, this other kind of descriptor of him, that he's the king. He is King David. But when we get to this spot in verse six, there's this subtle change, right? And it just says, and David said. And David didn't say, all right, Mephibosheth, this is it. I finally found you. I hunted you down. You cannot escape, all right? He speaks his name, not in condemnation, but with a love and care. I imagine when David says this, what is running through his mind is like, oh my goodness, Mephibosheth, you're my best friend's son. Oh my goodness, wait till we have dinner. Wait till I tell you the stories about what your dad and I used to do, the trouble we used to get into, the fun that we used to have. Like that's what's happening here. He speaks a name, not to shame him, not to threaten him, but he's welcoming him. He's seeing him. Every one of us has a desire to be seen and known. As if I've referenced this before, but Kurt Thompson, the author, talks about all of us coming into this world looking for someone looking for us, right? Mephibosheth has had no one looking for him. He's in low day bar, the place of no growth, no pasture, desolate. He's crippled. He basically is left for dead. And now the king has summoned him not to end his life, but to give him new life. And he looks at him. He says, Mephibosheth, and he calls him by name. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And then David said to him, these words, do not fear. Because he knew enough to know how this story typically plays out. David's no dummy. He knows that kings usually put people like Mephibosheth to death. But he says, do not fear. One of the most frequent commands in all of the scriptures are given to us, do not fear. He says, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. What an amazing blessing. Hey, your grandfather's house up the hill. It's amazing. It's beautiful. That's yours. The land that he has to be able to farm. And that's, that's how the economy was driven. That's great. I'm gonna give you that. And Mephibosheth's probably thinking, okay, that's amazing, all this land. I'm glad it grows things, but like, do you see me? Like, I'm not gonna be able to do this. He's like, I got you. We'll see a moment later in the text. Hey, Ziba, you got a bunch of servants. You got a ton of sons, right? You got a team of 35 people, all right? Direct all your energy, all your resources. You now work for Mephibosheth. I mean, think about what has changed in a matter of hours for this man. I'll restore you to the land. And then he says, and you're gonna eat at my table. I mean, you have plenty of your own food. You could have food at your own house. But I'm inviting you in. 
This is a picture. You don't invite your enemies around the table. You invite the family. He's like, listen, every meal, Solomon will be there and Absalom, he'll be there. Like, I mean, all of David's family. He's like, you're gonna eat. Tim Chester in his commentary on 2 Samuel said it this way. David is not merely fulfilling the letter of his promise to Jonathan. Mephibosheth is not merely tolerated. He's not just given provisions. He's invited into a relationship with David. Eating is a powerful symbol of friendship. God's king was eating with God's enemies as a sign of God's grace. And it is the same today. Christ does not merely tolerate us. He invites us into a relationship of intimacy and friendship. And that is powerfully symbolized in the invitation to eat at his table in the Lord's Supper. Christ says to you, eat at my table. Friends, this is what we are invited into. The story continues. Mephibosheth says even that at this point, remember he had gotten down, he fell face down. I mean, even just how awkward that must have been for a man who can't walk to try and make his way to get down and to to pay his respects to, to the king. It says he paid homage and he said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Now, it is helpful for us to not have too high a view of ourselves. In fact, it is needed for entry into the kingdom of God. We have to recognize that we're broken, that we are spiritually crippled. We are, we are spiritually bankrupt. Like we have nothing, right? Jesus would say, blessed are the poor in spirit, not the middle class in spirit. Blessed are the poor. Do you understand your depravity, your need? Do, do I understand that? To the extent that we understand it, we'll appreciate God's grace. But I think this is something different. When he says a, a dead dog, it's not that he has just a healthy regard for his brokenness. I think what's going on there is there's just even like a contempt, contempt that he has for himself. He doesn't think he's worthy of love. He has believed the lie that he is be, to be discarded to be rejected. You're, you know where you're worthy of living? Low day bar, the place of no growth. This stuff that's happened to you, the fact that you're crippled, the fact that you're lame, maybe he's like, maybe I deserve that. He does not believe that he is deserving of any of this. And at one level, yes, he's right, he's not deserving. But I think there is this unhealthy contempt that he has for himself. A question we need to ask ourselves, not only this morning, but through this series and every moment, really, of every day, what narrative are you believing? Are, if you're in Christ, are you believing and rejoicing the fact that God is rejoicing over you, that he says, I want you, I desire you, I wanna be in relationship with you, I see you in everything that you're dealing with? Or do you believe the lie that the enemy constantly speaks that reminds you, you never, mess, you never measure up, and you're a mess up, and you're a failure, and you don't deserve love? People don't like you, people hate you, you should probably actually hate yourself. Get on board with that. And so in this moment, he's wrestling with that. And friends, we wrestle with that. And how you answer that, are you believing the truth or the lie, has massive implications for the state of your soul. You wanna have your soul renewed, restored, refreshed? We have to pay attention to what narrative we're living according to because everybody's following some narrative. James Bryan Smith, in his book, which much of the series we're kind of following the general outline from, says this. 
If you fail to live into your true spiritual identity, into the gift that you are, you will suffer a sickness of soul. Your soul cannot endure the constant striving to establish your worth in any way other than in God. Our identity is given by God. We do not have to search for significance. Seriously, are you hearing that? Every moment of every day, the dominant cultural narrative is that you have to search for that. He says this, significance has found us. I want you, I desire you, I make you significant, is what God is saying. And then living then becomes a process of discovering and living into that significance. This is what is before Mephibosheth. You got nothing to prove. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna welcome you in as a son around my table. Friends, do you see what God has done for you in Christ? If you are in Christ, this is what is true about you and about me. It says, then the king called Ziba, which we talked about a moment ago, right? Got this army of like 35 people, right? Can you imagine? At any moment, you got 35 people that just do whatever you want. (laughs) You need something, they're on it. The king calls him, and then we get to verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Every moment, every meal, every day, for the rest of his life, welcomed in to the place of fellowship, the place of belonging, the place of acceptance, that every meal that was served, every time a plate was set before him and Mephibosheth was like brought in and probably awkwardly tried to get like feet under the table, right? Every place setting, every meal, every item of every meal that was served, every drink that was ever served was just this reminder. I see you, I love you, I'm so glad that you are here. That is the provision that David makes for Mephibosheth. And then as we look, the last verse says, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. And then it ends this way. Now he was lame in both his feet. Honestly, all week is reading that and thinking, okay, why that detail at the end, right? We know he's lame in both his feet. We know he's been crippled. That's been stated a couple of different times, a couple of different ways. Like, we get it. Why end this chapter with that? He ate always at the king's table. And I think it shows us what we need if we're gonna have our souls restored. At the one hand, it's always, remember, the provision of God. Always rest in that. Always enjoy that. But also there's this recognition amidst the beauty of all that, there is a brokenness. And it's not for him to dwell on his broken feet, the lameness that he has, but it's, he would have been reminded every moment of every day how dependent he was. Friends, like the fact of the matter is we need to live with that same posture, that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we are spiritually crippled, that we can't do anything on our own. We're not gonna make our way to God God had to come down. God had to dwell in human form. God had to literally walk among us. And God had to go, God's son, Jesus, God in the flesh, had to die the death that you and I deserve. So the fact of the matter is, I think what this is driving at at the end is helping us see that we are a Mephibosheth. We are people who have been radically loved, provided for, sustained, seen, cared for, desired. And yet there is a brokenness still. And until Jesus comes back and sets everything right, 
We're gonna feel that. Mephibosheth didn't, it would've been amazing if his feet had been healed. But do you know what he did have? He had a seat at the table. He was treated like the king's son. He had an inheritance. He was provided for. He was seen. And so regardless of what you and I are going through, the sin pattern we can't seem to break free of, the brokenness that we encounter, the hurt and the pain, the things that we wish were different, just know this, God sees you, he desires you, and he one day is gonna set everything right. So we are people like Mephibosheth that are in need of grace. And so we'll close with this. How? How could David show such kindness? And we might read this again and think, yeah, David, man, what a kind, compassionate guy. It's good to finally have a good king in there. Glad we got rid of Saul, right? Like, one might read it that way. But if you know anything about David's life, you know, like, guy messes up in huge ways. How could David show such kindness? There's a key line that comes up all the way back in verse one, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And again, in verse seven, David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you, has said, I'll show you like love and kindness and action for what? For the sake of your father, Jonathan. There's something happening here that has been communicated that Jonathan deserves something. Jonathan had earned something. John, there are certain things that belong to Jonathan. And David is saying, that is all now gonna be transferred to you, Mephibosheth. The theological word is that is all going to be imputed to you. You're gonna get what Jonathan had coming. Good royalty running through his veins. There's this exchange that's taking place. There's this transfer that's taking place. I love the way Tim Keller talked about this in a sermon from years ago on this, this text. He said this, David had a friend who loved him covenantally. Speaking of Jonathan, David had a friend who put himself in harm's way to take David out of harm's way and who lost his throne so David could ascend the throne. What a friend. I mean, that's mind-blowing. David had a friend like that, and so do you. But it's even better. David could risk his life to love Mephibosheth because of what Jonathan had done. God can love you and God can receive you. Even though he has the right to smite you, God can bring you into his presence and adopt you and empower you for the sake of an even greater friend. The friend that is Jesus, the friend of sinners, the one who loves his enemies, I was an enemy of Jesus, an enemy of the king, an enemy of the state, deserving death, to be smited. That's what I deserve. That's what Mephibosheth deserves. And Jesus instead gives all that belongs to him, all that he rightfully earned, achieved, should have received, and he transfers that to us. That's what's taking place on the cross. And we send him all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our brokenness, and he is forsaken by God the Father so that you and I can be welcomed around the table. That's what the story of Mephibosheth is about. You are desired by the God of the universe. Mephibosheth had an amazing story, but friends, your story and my story in Christ blows that one away. Mephibosheth, it literally, his story doesn't hold anything compared to your story in Christ. It points us to what is true and good and beautiful. It points us to a story that says you're desired by the God of the universe who would literally give up everything to get you back. That's why Paul would write in Philippians chapter three, I wanna be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what's been transferred to us. That's why you have a seat at the table. That's why you have an inheritance. That's why you're a son or daughter. 
not because of your righteousness. We're spiritually lame and crippled and beat up and low to bar. We can't produce any sort of growth. But God has reached down. He has condescended to us and he loves us and he rejoices over us. So church, to the extent that we know that and rest in that, our souls will be restored. And guess what? We get to take that same message to other people. The God of the universe sees you. He sees your neighbor, your coworker, your family member that doesn't believe what you believe. He sees your enemies and says, I desire them. May our souls be restored. Church, let me pray for us, give you a chance to spend some time contemplating what do you need to repent of. Remember the story, and we're going to rejoice together. I'll give us some instruction as the worship team comes back up. Let's pray. God, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for the truth that we are desired. You desire us. Jesus, thank you for being willing to pay the ultimate price. Your compassion was so costly. May we rejoice in that. May we rejoice in the identity that we have in you. Thank you for the transfer of your righteousness to us. And God, I pray as we continue in worship, God, that you would get your glory, that we as your people would experience just a deep and abiding joy. We pray in Christ's name, amen.